Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and today we are joined by Karen Tawney. Karen is the author of States of Dependency, Welfare, Rights, and American Governance, 1935 to 1972, which was published in 2016 by Cambridge University Press. Karen... Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and today we are joined by Karen Tawney. Karen is the author of States of Dependency, Welfare, Rights, and American Governance, 1935 to 1972, which was published in 2016 by Cambridge University Press. Karen, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so before we talk specifically about states of states of dependency, forgive me, um, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about maybe your own uh, areas of interest, your intellectual background, the things that sort of animate you, uh, and then perhaps sort of lead up into talking about how you arrived at this particular project. Sure. So um, maybe the most uh, important thing about my background is that I'm trained as both a historian and a lawyer. So I'm a graduate of uh, a joint degree program in American legal history from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, So they set up a program there where you take, um, you get a JD as well as a PhD in history. So I'm very much um, a product of interdisciplinary training and somebody that that um, comes to, to history with um, an appreciation for that, the more technical side mm-hmm. of uh, law and who comes to legal questions with a historian's sensibility. Um, so that's sort of my, um, my disciplinary background. Uh, in terms of how I got uh, to that particular mix of training and why I've been writing about the things that I've been writing about, I attribute a lot of that actually to... Um, kind of happenstance and mentorship. So I went to, um, I did my undergraduate work at Dartmouth College, where I was really fortunate to work with um, a historian named Annalise Orlick, who Mm -hmm. at the time that I was there was writing, she was in the middle of this, um, her wonderful book on the welfare rights movement in Las Vegas. And she had asked me to um, do some kind of policy and legal research on the war on poverty and specifically on these um, community development corporations and these, um, these kind of federal funds that were flowing directly to, in this case, welfare rights organizers. Mm-hmm. Um, And it was through that work that I became, um, it really deepened my interest in history, it deepened my interest in poverty policy and issues of inequality. And then it really um, helped me appreciate uh, more the importance of legal research and understanding the intricacies of these um, huge, complex, complex statutes. So it was really from that research um, that I started branching towards um, this particular mix of training and also my, my own topic. I mean, now, and when you were at Penn, you worked with Michael Katz, correct? 
That's right. Yeah. So I had the good fortune uh, to work with the late Michael Katz. He recently um, passed away, a really sad loss for um, for all of us. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Michael Katz, uh, as you know, the great uh, the great scholar of um, poverty, inequality, cities, just a huge body of um, really influential work and somebody who also really married um, social history and political history and policy history in just an incredibly sophisticated way while also just having um, a really strong uh, passion and sense of, I guess, ethics. You know, he was a historian that really his own I think convictions infused his work in a way that never detracted from its um, its rigor, but um, you know his own his own commitments. I think. Uh, came through. The chair of my dissertation was actually Tom Sobru, you know, equally wonderful. I would say his work has um, some of those same qualities. And then um, the final member of my dissertation committee was um, Sally Gordon, who is a terrific uh, legal historian and really helped me understand how I could incorporate my legal training into the work of a historian. Um. I'm going to resist the urge to ask questions about the work of all of those people um, <laughs> because it's a sort of fascinating stuff that maybe we'll find opportunity when we talk about your book. So um, States of Dependency looks at two different time periods. You sort of break it up into 1935 to 1949 and then bring us from 1950 up through the early 1970s, 1972. And you're making three main arguments throughout the book. Now, the first is... Um, about the New Deal era roots of rights talk, which I think it's fair to say most people historically associate with the 1960s rather than the 1930s. Um, The second argument is about how that New Deal era altered federal, state, and local power and sort of the relative balance among them in particular kinds of issues. And the third is about the institutionalization or what you call the legalization of the poor law. So so why don't if if it's all right with you, why don't we take those those in turn and start off and maybe ask you to talk a little bit about what you describe as the the administrative distribution of rights talk in the New Deal period and why we should care about that. Sure. Yeah. So that is, as you said, one of the uh, most important arguments in the book. And in some ways, it's an argument that um, is is the origin story of the book. So I came to this project um, with much more of an interest in, um, you know, as I said, the welfare rights movement, welfare rights claiming, uh, going to law school. I was really interested in these welfare rights cases that made it to the Supreme Court in the late 60s and uh, and early 70s. Um, and I guess uh, I don't know so that those cases are really even taught much in law schools anymore, that people know much about them. Um, so for those people who don't, there was a flurry of cases around this time period where um, Supreme Court seemed to recognize uh, for the first time in a really systematic way that poor people had uh, robust constitutional rights. Um, Some of the decisions even verged towards suggesting that they might have like a constitutional right uh, to basic income support. So, you know, activists, of course, were really hoping that the court would eventually take that position. They did back away from it, but there was at this time um, just... uh, 
you know, a more, I guess, a more liberal attitude um, towards the poor and a real a willingness on the part of the justices to say these people fall under the Constitution's uh, protection. And that implies some real limits on um, how they can be treated by state and local officials. So another aspect of this was um, really powerful statements about, you know, equal protection of the laws and how you shouldn't be using welfare laws to um, enforce different standards of morality on the poor, for example. So I was really interested in these cases from the late 60s, early 70s, and I figured that um, maybe a starting point for my research would be to try to just um, get a little bit more background on how and why people had started to think about welfare in rights terms, you know, that's not something that um, necessarily seemed intuitive to a lot of people that was, um, uh, you know, there was a lot of resistance to that idea. We still see a lot of resistance to that idea. So my starting point for my dissertation was, can I kind of historicize that and get a better sense of where that idea was coming from? Um, So one of the first things that I did was I just sort of... um, I looked at some of these influential legal scholars and activists, you know, who are credited with um, bringing welfare rights into the courts. And I tried to say, well, who are they reading? Who are they talking to? You know, what's their kind of network? Um, And then one of the people I stumbled upon was this um, kind of little known figure named A. Delafield Smith, who um, wrote uh, what seemed like an early statement on the... um, on welfare rights, on the rights of the of the poor. So this was the mid-1950s. He wrote a book called The Right to Life. So at that point, right, the right to life didn't really have anything to do with abortion. Um, he was speaking of the right to life in this kind of theoretical sense, but which to him was really grounded actually in um, rights to um, income support and also rights to be treated fairly regardless of your um, economic status or advantage. So I was trying to figure out, okay, who is this guy Why is he writing about this in the 1950s? And then I learned that he's actually a government lawyer, a longtime government lawyer, and that he started his career in government during the New Deal and had basically been in – He'd been a federal bureaucrat for his entire entire career. So he's somebody that um, worked in – it's an agency that changed names a bunch of times. Um, You know, it's most – recent iteration is like, you know, health and human services, you know, before that health education and welfare before that the social security board. So in any case, he'd been in this um, basically federal welfare agency from the new deal going forward and really built his career there. Um, And that's sort of what made me realize that there's, um, there's a federal administrative um, story about rights language that, um, that might be here. So from, from his book, I then started digging into federal archives um, from the 30s and 40s. And that's where I actually found um, what I would describe as kind of a treasure trove of overlooked rights talk um, coming from federal administrators. Um, the interesting thing about it, though, for me is that it's not... Um, it's not rights language in the way that I think we conventionally think about rights language. So I think we often think about um, welfare rights as claims that activists are making on the state to get material benefits or to get, um, you know, dignitary kind of protections. 
And the way that I was seeing this rights language work was somewhat different. So uh, my argument in the book is that these federal administrators were, um, you know, saying things about rights, welfare rights that sound pretty modern. um, But in their context, it was more a conversation actually with um, state and local officials about how they ought to be understanding um, New Deal poor relief. So I really placed that rights language in the context of, look, the New Deal is radically shaking up the landscape of American poor relief. Part of what's happening here is the federal government is um, trying to displace the old poor law in a way, or at least the way that the old poor law um, was working. And part of that displacement had to be a kind of paradigm shift in the way that people thought about, you know, what's at stake here and who are these, um, who are poor people. So my argument in the book is that um, this rights language that, again, seems like it eventually trickles into the courts in the 60s and the 70s. It has this New Deal origin story. But the way that we need to think about rights language in that earlier period is much more embedded in a story about kind of federal, state, local interactions over just, you know, what is poor relief and how should it be run? And and some of that, I mean, that's that's. In, in your understanding, part of that is, is a means to let – me, let, me, let me back up a sec. There are sort of an awful lot of folks who have made the argument that a lot of the programs of the New Deal uh, were unconstitutional, including the Supreme Court of the time. And it strikes me that those were actually perfectly legitimate arguments at that particular moment. Is, is part of your claim that the language being used – was a way of asserting the legitimacy of that power to state governments who uh, may be inclined to resist and those who did, in fact, resist? Yeah, I think part of it was, you know, I would say even less about kind of um, the constitutional legitimacy of the Social Security Act. And I would say it was more about um in some ways, explaining to state and local governments, or at least trying to explain what exactly has happened here now that the federal government has stepped in here and massively subsidized your poor relief operations. So I think the backdrop here for me is like a landscape of poor relief that before the New Deal was, you know, very much a patchwork um you know, unsystematic, highly decentralized system varied a lot from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, no uniformity even within states, right? So um, different localities within the same state could be doing totally different things in terms of what they did with poor relief. So the Great Depression happens, um, you get Federal Emergency Relief Administration, so that's the federal government starting to um, take a bigger role. And what I see happening with the Social Security Act is, um, at least so this is the public assistance titles, to be clear, not the program that we think of now as Social Security. Um, so these are you know big subsidies um, to states that say, look, here's some money for um, something that looks a lot like poor relief, you know, just it's old fashioned income support. It's for aid to dependent children. It's for aid to the elderly. It's for aid to the blind. Um, But then implicit in if you take the money, that's going to come with some new federal rules. And these rules um, are a way of the federal government saying you have to modernize your operations. So you can't be doing poor relief in the way that you had been doing it for centuries. We want you to have a more centralized, bureaucratized system where you hire people people on a merit basis, where you give out money in cash rather than in the form of like clothes or grocery orders, where you give people, 
um, an opportunity to appeal decisions that they don't like, right? So I think there's a lot of this um, stuff that actually is, is changing as a result of federal subsidies, or at least that the federal reformers want to change. And so I argue that rights languages, um, in this context, it's, it's a way of helping people understand um, the paradigm shift. So I think if you were to think about um, a poor person as a rights holder, rather than say a pauper, or rather than a charity case, right, that's arguably helping you make that kind of conceptual shift that the federal reformers wanted. That's what I argue in the book. So that's, I mean, that's in some ways sort of getting us to the, the second piece of that argument, right? The ways in which this, this sort of, of, of new, new sets of programs and policies, obviously, but this new conception of right actually has uh, sort of fundamental effects on American federalism itself. Um, it also, and, and, you know, you point this out, this also begins to sort of tap a little bit into, uh, the American political development literature. So, so moving not just from, from legal, uh, and, uh, historical disciplines, but on into political science, the ways in which sort of the development of, uh, the administrative state over time, uh, may, uh, well, why don't I let you finish that sort of, how does, how does that all, what, what happens to American federalism in this period and, and maybe how does it tap into that other literature in the ways that you think, uh, helps our understanding about the development of the state itself? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, for me, kind of historiographically, a, um, a big piece of what I'm writing against, or at least trying to be in conversation with, is a big literature that spans a bunch of different disciplines, political science, sociology, history, law, that's really interested in, you know, the modern American state, or what does the state look like in the 20th century? And my critique of that literature, and this is not unique to me, but it's something I feel really strongly about, is that the literature has tended to really privilege the federal government. So, you know, as if when we say the state, all that matters is the federal government. Um, and I think, you know, yes, it's true. Part of what makes the modern American state the modern American state is this, um, you know, much more um, visibly powerful federal government that, you know, has a lot more by way of administrative capacities and boots on the ground, you know, just a bigger reach into American life. You know, I think that's absolutely true. But I think that what that um, can be missed when we emphasize that so much is, well, what happens to the state governments? What happens to local governments? It's not as if these other level levels of government just fade away. I mean, we know that right now from our, you know, from our current moments and our current politics. Um, so I was feeling dissatisfied with a literature that didn't um, kind of provide a robust account of what's going on with those other levels of government. Um, so I think that what of what part of what you see when you look closely at the administration of poor relief is that you actually see um, a lot more uh, negotiation and interdependence. You see that the federal government, you know, federal reformers might have had the money, right? And they might have kind of had the vision and the aspiration and the ability to um, enact kind of national policy programs, but they relied in terms of actual administration, they relied really, really heavily on um, state and local officials. And that also brought with it then its own, um, its own kind of set of powers to those state and local officials. Um, another argument that I make in the book that's kind of a sub set of this has to do with um, what, so there's a historian, John Tiford, who's written a lot about the rise of the states, trying to help us understand um, how the states 
went from becoming um, kind of unsophisticated administrators to actually incredibly um, sophisticated by the end of the 20th century. So part of my argument here is about um, poor relief. You know, it was a local function. It wasn't something that state governments were really that involved in. These New Deal federal welfare grants are basically saying to the states, we're going to give you money for your people. But along with that, um, you have to create a state bureaucracy to administer that. In other words, they're kind of subsidizing states um, in developing, in becoming more sophisticated, in becoming, you know, kind of creating levers of central power at the state level. Um, So that in turn is going to have ripple effects at the local level, right? So I think the overall story is probably the rise of the federal government, but also the rise of the state government and then the diminishment um, of local governments. So how so how does there's sort of there's a there's a sort of a a countervailing narrative that's going on there. Right. When if you sort of think about um, the program that we now think of as Social Security, the old age uh, pension piece versus ADC or the old age insurance piece, the grants and aid to to older people. Um, Social Security now, I think, is is uh, pretty widely known as a matter of historical interpretation um, was structured in a way to exclude agricultural and domestic workers who uh, not coincidentally was the uh, overall opuca- occupation of African-Americans living in the South. And that became a way for Social Security to write racial discrimination into its policy. Um, when you get to things like ADC and OAA, you can't do that, right? There isn't an occupation in those programs to discriminate against. So you've got to figure out a way, uh, given the post Civil War amendments to write discrimination into the law without actually writing discrimination in the law. So the argument often goes those programs were structured to give wide variation to the states so that those particularly southern states who wanted to figure out clever ways to exclude African-Americans from the roles could do it. But other states who wanted to make those programs operate more broadly could do that as well. I mean, how does what do you what do you make of of that? Uh, much more common story and how does that fit into your narrative? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think, um, so I think that story is, is absolutely right. I think a lot of historians have emphasized that aspect of these programs. So again, the, um, if I could phrase it a little bit, you know, just add maybe one more data point. Mm-hmm. Part of what could have happened with these um, public assistance titles is that Congress could have said there is now going to be a national floor for um, what will be like a minimum basic income. So, you know, you the states, here's some federal money, but just know you can't, you have to pay people above, you know, X amount for aid to dependent children or X amount for old age assistance. Um, so that was another um potential provision of the act that gave way in the face of pressure from Southern senators. And again, I think for the same reason that you articulated, um, feeling that, you know, if you were to set a a federally defined floor, then you undermine these, um, these racialized economic hierarchies uh, in, in the South. So I think that story is definitely, um, is definitely there. Um, and I don't, and I hope that I don't dismiss it in the book. I think part of what I've, um, I've, I've worried about when 
reading kind of the poor relief literature generally uh, from that period is that um, there can be a, a, a continuity narrative that then I think is a little bit um, overstated and, um, and harmful. So I think the continuity narrative that comes into play then is this sense of, okay, well, then poor relief is just always about um, racism and it's always about uh, keeping the poor down. And, you know, regardless of whether we're talking about, you know, 1820s poor relief or, you know, 1950s aid to dependent children, it's kind of like the same old story. Mm -hmm. And I worry that that narrative causes us to miss some of the other innovations from the New Deal. And I think those are the innovations that actually um, allowed for a system over time that was more resistant um, to racial discrimination. So I would say, you know, it's never perfectly resistant to racial discrimination, but actually made it um, significantly harder. Uh, so I would say some of those innovations are, again, telling um, state programs, you know, you have to have a uniform set of rules that you apply to people equally throughout the state. You have to give people an opportunity to appeal local decisions uh, that, you know, that they don't like. Um, you have to people give people benefits in the form of cash rather than these other forms. Um, eventually, some federal administrators took a hard line against sort of morality restrictions that some state and local um, administrators were trying to build into these programs. So I would say I think um, racism or the... Um, the potential for racial discrimination is, in a sense, I think, baked into the structure of the programs. But there were also aspects of the programs um, that I think allowed the paradigm to shift um, to shift somewhat. And I think actually that account, my account, helps us um, get a better sense of why there is a backlash against these programs by the 50s and 60s. Right, the backlash is because people actually have access to these programs who wouldn't have had it in previous eras. Right, so it's actually true that the number of African-American women and children goes up on the ADC rolls. And I would say that's coming directly from the kind of um, innovations that I was that I was describing, right? So in previous eras, those people just wouldn't even get benefits, but somehow they are getting on the rolls. And that, um, again, I think that's part of what's fueling then this 50s and 60s um, strong ADC backlash. Um, so that that is... Um Thank you for that. And it's, I, I agree completely that I think sort of your story folded into that more traditional one gives us a much more, um, at least gives me any more, a much more satisfying account of what's going on in that mid-century period. Um, so so you've sort of started talking about this sort of institutionalization of these new arrangements and and the legalization of, of the poor law uh, leading up to this sort of more traditional area of our focus, the sort of the 1960s rights revolution. Um, so what more is there to be say about that, that legalization of poor law? And again, sort of what, um, what does it, it maybe help us understand better both about the experience of poor and low-income Americans and the, the development of uh, federal and state government and their relationships to each other? Yeah, so I think the legalization story for me is part of, um, again, if part of what I want to say is that we should understand poor relief not poor relief in the U.S. not as a story of complete continuity, but of change over time and trying to kind of name that change. I think um, legalization is a really helpful uh, word, and what I mean by that is um, is a few different things. So one thing that I'm trying to get at is um, the uh, the importance or the, the 
growing importance of things like um, statutes and regulations. So by that, I mean, you know, public law manifestations of how these programs are supposed to look. So the fact that you get people um, talking about rule books, right, knowing that there is such a thing as like the, you know, the, the rule book. So one of the things you see activists doing by the 1960s is saying we have to get a, a, a hold of these rule books so we know what the rules are because there becomes this real sense that rules actually constrain um, welfare officials. So part of the story is to just um, track how that happened over time. Because again, I think if you were to look at, say, you know, 1910, 1920, that's not necessarily how people are thinking about poor relief or um, poor relief administration. So part of it is, again, kind of the importance of um, public law, of written codified rules, the sense that that actually does, um, you know, that the rule of law sort of exists within poor relief administration. I think another piece of that is... um, has to do with the Constitution and the sense that the Constitution actually um, governs this territory as well. So again, I think if you were to look at, say, 1910, 1920, into the 30s, it's not, uh, people wouldn't necessarily have said, uh, you know, poor people, right, are subjects of the Constitution with really robust um, protections under the Bill of Rights, but, you know, by the 1960s, by the 1970s, people are all about talking about their due process rights, their equal protection rights. So I think there's a transformation as well in people's kind of understanding of themselves as like legal subjects or constitutional subjects. Um, I think what I don't want to say in the book and um, what I hope is clear is that I don't think this kind of legalization transformation that I'm describing necessarily makes the poor any better off. Um, Because I think you can make the argument that, um, you know, that you can, this is a kind of a riff off of something that Piven and Clower said, but you can starve under the rule book, just like you can starve, you know, without the rule book, right? There are ways um, under existing rules that bureaucrats can disentitle the poor or not give people, you know, what the rules say they should get. There are ways to um, apply the rules that it's actually kind of harder for people to figure out how to access uh, their benefits or so that they feel discouraged. I think the rules also bring with them um, in some cases, criminal sanctions, right? So fraud rules are part of the landscape as well. These really punitive rules that say that if you don't, uh, if you appear to be taking advantage of the system, you can now be treated as a, as a criminal. So I don't think the legalization story is sort of like a, um, you know, a progress narrative necessarily, but I do think it's important that we see the way that the landscape of poor relief has shifted and that part of the shift is towards um, the rule of law. Do you, do, you mean, do you think there's an extent to which the, um, you know, and part of the dependence on right language was strategic as part of those movements, right, as a way to sort of legitimize claims that, that poor and low-income women of color in particular were making. But, I mean, do you, do you see any evidence that that turn, that assertion of rights in some ways uh, created a, a broader opening to the backlash than might otherwise have been present? I'm sorry, I missed what you last said. Did yeah, that was a, the, whether, whether um, it was a poorly formed question. Um, does, is there a risk of this sort of this turn to, to rights assertion um, for, for what historically had always been understood to be poor relief benefits, something that is at the discretion of the state, something that is charity, that the assertion of the right creates, because that is unusual, perhaps, in American thinking, that that created a greater opportunity for success for the anti-welfare backlash movements? 
Yeah, I think you're, I think that's a really astute question. So I think that it creates, um, so I think that, that the fact that this rights language is coming from government officials is it ends up being a sort of double-edged sword. So I think that it, um, it gives that language some legitimacy for people who are outside of government and want to um, take that in a more activist way. So part of the um, <clears throat> part of the book is about how there are kind of um, sympathetic people who are outside the federal government who are maybe friends and allies with people working in the government who really run with this kind of rights language that take it out of that administrative context, bring it into courts, bring it into other settings, you know, help people um, understand that they have rights and really start exercising those rights in the real world. So I think there's that piece of the story. But then I think you're right that there's also this, um, this piece of the story that rights language really energizes um, opponents of the New Deal, of which we know, you know, there are lots of opponents of the New Deal, and some of their best um, kind of propaganda or literature uses uh, examples from the realm that I'm talking about. So publications coming from the federal government where, you know, a federal administrator says, poor people, you have rights within these programs. So there are anti-New Deal businessmen, for example, who, um, you know, turn this stuff again into into kind of um, propaganda pamphlets and say, like, isn't this, um, isn't this sort of exactly what's wrong with government right now? This is kind of big activist, uh, they would say, socialized government um, that is encouraging people to think about what, you know, what they would call charity as an entitlement. And again, I think it starts to stand in for, um, for kind of everything that's uh, wrong with the New Deal. And then I think it also is, um, I think, as you alluded to earlier, especially um, problematic or perceived to be problematic um, when that rights language somehow becomes associated with non-white, um, never married women, uh, then it's playing into um, a lot of other uh, negative associations as well. Um, you are listening to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpere, the host of the Public Policy Channel, and we are speaking with Karen Tawney, who's the author of States of Dependency, Welfare Rights and American Governance, 1935 to 1972. Um, so, so, Karen, so I, I want to ask an unfair question. Uh, your book takes us up through 1972, but I wonder if you would sort of, I'm, I've got sort of the, 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 the welfare reforms of the Clinton administration of the 1990s in mind. Um, I mean, do you, do, you, do you see ways in which sort of your research and deep thinking about that particular period helps us better understand what happened in the 1990s? Sure. That's a really good, that's a really good question too. Um, and I have gotten a little bit of, um, not pushback, but just people wondering about why I stopped the story uh, when I did. I think to me, so just to explain why mm-hmm. I am where I do in 72, because clearly, you know, as you said, there's a there's a, contempor- a more contemporary story here that's sure. really sure. compelling and important. Um, but for me, so 1972 is... Um, is a time when I would say this idea of a nationally guaranteed minimum income, that was actually a valid proposal that had some legs to it, right? So Nixon actually, um, you know, seriously got behind that proposal, maybe only briefly. Um, and people were really, you know, Congress was really seriously considering it. So that's a family assistance um, plan. And um, and it and it fails. Um, so that's around, <clears throat> again, early 1970s. This is Killed around by both left and right. I mean, it really yeah, was right. sort of squeezed in the middle. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. And um, we also around that same time see some um, Supreme Court cases, so welfare rights cases that um, really seem to kind of um, put a nail in the coffin of uh, what activists were hoping to get from the Supreme Court. So to the extent they thought the Supreme Court was going to say um, you have a right, uh, you know, like a constitutional right to a nationally guaranteed minimum income, you know, that hope appears to be dashed um, by the Supreme Court. So I see this as kind of um, the end of a possibility. So if, you know, implicit in the 1935 Act were kind of a bunch of possibilities, and this might be the most radical of them, I would say by 72, it's really clear um, that that possibility is gone. And I would say it's also really clear sort of the lineages of our um, of our poor, modern poor relief system. And I would say kind of the lineages of a modern American state, those are pretty much um, in in place. So what I see as kind of being very clear by, um, by 1972 is that uh, we do have a state that is governed by law. So we care, everybody agrees that um, the system is a, right, is a legal system where we look to statutes and regulations to tell us um, what is appropriate behavior. When there are disagreements, we handle them in court, right? So I think everybody is on board with that. I think it's pretty firmly established um, that due process and equal protection have to be available to the to the poor. So these kind of um, at least formal guarantees of fairness yeah. have to be in place. Uh, but I think then some of the more um, radical possibilities now are firmly uh, are firmly gone. So this idea that, you know, maybe there once was this idea that the modern American state should involve a sort of social right to um, a minimum subsistence. I would say that's clearly um, out of the picture. And then I think as well, there's um, an idea that seems kind of in flux during this period is this sense of how much can the state intrude? How much can the state um, demand on someone if, you know, in return for helping them, how much can they look into the person's private life? Um, And it seems as well by the 1970s that the consensus is, at least for poor people, we're going to be comfortable with that. So we're not going to say you can't go into people's um, homes. So again, I I just see 1972 as this time when it's, you know, we maybe we had uh, some openness in terms of what is the modern American state and what does it promise people? And then we have a point of closure. And so I guess from that perspective, like if you see kind of a lot of these questions as being um, sort of decided by the 70s, it's not really that surprising um, what happens uh, in by the 90s. So I think, um, you know, maybe it's maybe it surprised some people who thought that um, we had a more kind of a, a generous set of commitments to the poor, but in terms of kind of how the system is working, it's, it's basic logic. I would say that's not inconsistent with anything that we had, um, anything that we had in the seventies. And I guess if I would say there's one, if there's one thing that that story makes me feel, it sort of reinforces something that I described in the book. It actually is the rise of the state's story. So um, the sense, right, that the federal government is rising in tandem um, with state power in this particular policy area. So by the 90s, you actually really get a sense of um, how powerful the states are and how much they're able to say, um, you know, give us back um, even even more authority. Note that in the 90s, nobody's saying let's just give this all back to the local level. Right. That so right. that idea is totally gone. Never on the table. 
Yeah, exactly. Which I think itself is, you know, an indication of what had changed in this period. But the idea of shifting the balance between the federal and state governments and recognizing that they're both very sophisticated um, actors, I think that's very clear. It's it's also very interesting because in the the 90s, of course, I mean, that that it's that's not a it's not a complete shift because what what the Personal Responsibility Act winds up doing is uh, taking away the floor, perhaps for for the, the, the cash welfare program and leaving much broader discretion up to the states, but establishing much more rigid ceilings and not permitting them to be more generous than so I mean it's sort of this this both assertion of national power and surrender of national power in some ways it's yeah like. yeah or another interesting feature is that it's an assertion of national power but this time um, to shore up you know workfare so yeah. it's a reminder that um, you know federal power doesn't have to be exercised in the way that the New Dealers had been doing it, you know, these, these kind of federal power and the bureaucratic structures that go with them could easily have different normative contents, I guess. Yeah. So, so I want to, I want to hear about sort of, of what's next for you and what you're thinking about. But before we do that, I want to make sure that there's um, nothing sort of in your mind that as we've been talking, you thought, oh, I should really talk about that, that, that we've skipped over that you might like maybe to, to go back to or make sure that people know or underline or any of those sorts of things. Um, what would I say? I think maybe just one last thing that I would say is mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, sometimes talking about your own book, you can you you feel like you're overstating your own contribution to a field. So I would say this book is like very much built on the shoulders of a lot of other scholars and a lot of other great, um, great work. So to just, I guess, call out some of the, um, the scholars that I'm mm-hmm. building on, you know, and whom, with whom I, without whom I couldn't have written this. So like Linda Gordon, for example, you know, path breaking work on age dependent children, my mentor, Michael Katz. Um, the book is also in conversation with a really, um, a strong and growing literature on, you know, what is the modern American state and how do we, um, how should we think about that? So um, somebody like Bill Novak, for example, uh, hugely influential for me, um, Jim Sparrow uh, at Chicago, similarly. So people who are really trying to help us understand, um, you know, not only just like kind of what is the state conceptually, but what does the state do on the ground? Um, Margot Canada, for example. So I think a lot of that I'm, um, I'm building on. And then there's just a lot of great um, scholarship by um, people who are kind of like activist scholars in the 60s, 70s, and 80s in the realm of um, uh, inequality. So, um, you know, people like William Simon and Joel Handler, like a lot of this. So again, I would, I would just want to say, acknowledge that I'm, um, I'm really standing on, um, on other people's shoulders and I'm really grateful for that. Um, and one of the many, many things that I appreciate about the book is that it's so sort of clearly rooted in, um, those, those, I mean, sort of across multiple literatures and, and I'm sort of always appreciative of folks who are, uh, reading broadly and trying to get disciplines to to talk to each other because I think sometimes we wind up doing a lot of wheel reinventing by not mm-hmm. reading outside our own nar- narrow confines, which is hard, right? Because you know, mm-hmm. was hearing you talk about sort of people complaining about sort of stopping at 1972, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. well, come on, what do you want from me? I can't write about <laughs> all of the 20th and 21st century all at once. Give me a break. Um, <laughs> So, so with that, so what are you working on next? What are, what are the sort of questions that are in your mind at the moment? 
Um, so I think I have kind of two right now, two prongs of future research that really interest me. So, um, something that I'm really interested more from, I guess, more from like a legal scholarship perspective is just about the importance of what administrators do historically and in the, um, and in the, in the present. So in, in law, which is, you know, I sort of have one of my feet in legal scholarship and there, there's a really, um, really robust literature on administrative law, but it tends to be about, um, kind of agencies and courts and separation of powers and it's sort of high level um, theory about how the administrative state should work. And um, there's not as much literature on what agencies actually do, um, at least not coming from um, law. So definitely people on the ground in you know, sociology are really interested in bureaucracy. Um, but I think that there's a lot more work that needs to be done on just um, you know, what's happening inside the administrative state and how is that affecting um, real people's lives. So I think one branch of my scholarship would be to try to go outside of poor relief and um, do maybe more kind of comparative work with other policy areas and to just um, get a better sense of what's happening. So, you know, part of what I like about the book is there's this story about kind of creativity and rights language um, coming from the administrative state. And that's, I think, surprising. And, um, um, and I, you know, I just love to know what could we see if we did more work like that you know, looking at what administrators actually do when they're faced with these complicated problems and have a limited set of um, tools, but, you know, have these important missions, how do they actually go about their work? Um, so I'd like to kind of deepen that side of my research agenda. And then the other piece that I've been thinking about, which is much more related to the welfare state and to poor relief, um, has to do with, uh, with disability. So I think a lot of um, people who are in, in this space um, writing more in the present day, observe that disability programs are really the most, the best place to access the welfare state right now. You know, those are actually the most generous and stable programs. Like if we look at what has happened to temporary aid to needy families, if we look at what's happened to food stamps, it actually does seem like um, just in terms of uh, getting basic support, the programs that are tethered to disability seem right now to be, you know, growing the fastest, to be the most generous and stable. So part of what I wanted, I would like to get a better handle on is um, how and why that happens and what that has meant for um, for real people. Because my sense is that, you know, people have complex identities and they don't just um, think about themselves in the terms that policymakers give them, right? They're not, they're not necessarily inclined to say, you know, I am a disabled person and that's the core of my identity. Um, but I think you realize that people to survive, you know, will define themselves according to laws, categories, and will do that sort of as many times or as, in many, as many ways as they need to so that they and their families can get by. So I'm really interested in kind of the implications of a, um, of a welfare state that has shifted so much of its resources and energy towards disability and away from um, historically what were kind of other categories of, I guess, deservingness. Um, so I'm not sure yet what that uh, kind of will look like in terms of like, archival research and what the final output will be, but it seems like it's a really important story to tell. Um, it does indeed, and, and also raises questions about sort of this particular historical moment 
is 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 that historical pattern something that is likely continue, or is is there is, yes. is that sort of um, you know assuming that you can access those disability programs? I think they arguably have sort of a, a, a higher cost of entry up front than many of them do, although yes. more stability and greater benefits once you get in. Um, whether that then becomes a target and that that ceases to be true as well for those programs. Yes. Time will um, tell. So thank you so much. This is Stephen Pimper. I'm uh, host of the Public Policy Channel at the New Books Network. And we have been speaking with Karen Tawney. Karen is the author of States of Dependency, Welfare Rights and American Governance, 1935 to 1972, published uh, this year, 2016, by Cambridge University Press. Karen, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you.